Life has valleys, doesn't it? I can imagine that if I were to ask you to go and to think back to the most difficult time of your life, that you wouldn't have trouble finding a moment like that in your life. You would have trouble deciding which one of the valleys of your life was the worst. Maybe it was when your husband or your wife came home and told you that they were leaving. That this was it, that the marriage was over. Maybe it was an adult child that, that you were so excited to see grow up, so excited to see what kind of man or woman they would be. And then one day, out of the blue, it's like they just wrote you off and stepped out of your life. And now you feel totally abandoned and lonely. Maybe it was when you lost and had to go to the funeral of your husband or your wife. Maybe it was when you experienced the loss of some dream of yours. For me, I can go back three and a half years. And I can think about a moment in my life in which it felt as though nothing was going right. Professionally, personally, spiritually, physically. It was like every single thing that I touched turned into a pumpkin at midnight. I was uh, in Africa, as many of you guys know, and my small intestines rupture. I come home, I have to have this emergency surgery. One of the men that had led me to faith in the Lord passes away suddenly. All is happening at the exact same time. I have this 10-month-old little baby in my house, and I can remember cycling through these emotions of, of anger and self-pity and sorrow and looking at her and thinking that she's never going to have the dad that she deserves. She's never going to be able, that I'm never going to be able to do all of the fun things with her that a young dad did. And in fact, while I was laying there in the hospital recovering from this surgery and this operation and, and unsure really what all was happening around me, I remember laying there and feeling like even if I didn't die, my life was over. That it was the death to everything that I like to do. And it was the death to everything that I thought my life would be. That it was the death of who I believed I was. But you know now, now when I look at the eight-inch scar that spans my torso, I don't look at it with regret. Now I look at the scar that I have and I praise God because it is evidence of God's kindness to me. And my experience has not been unique. It's not unique in this church. It's not unique in our community. It's not unique among the church at broad, abroad. That I imagine that for many of you, you would say the same thing that I have said. That you couldn't have imagined the valley of the shadow of death hurting the way that it hurt. And affecting you as a person the way that it affected you. And you couldn't have imagined the, the cycling through of the powerful emotions that you went through. Except you got to the end of it and the next sentence begins with, but God. But God. But God was at work in you through the rock bottom experiences of your life. That God was at work in you through the valleys of your life. So that ultimately the scars and the wounds and the limps that came became memorials in your life of his kindness to you. This is what we're going to see in Jacob's life today. 
This is what we're going to see in Jacob's life today. That what we see in Jacob's life today is a bad guy that hits rock bottom and at rock bottom sees nowhere to go. And there, there, the Lord assails him and then delivers him. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be... Again, in verse 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 32. God's word says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose, up, uh, the sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Jacob had obtained virtually everything good in his life by dishonest means. His name becomes synonymous in the scriptures with deceiver, with one who who operates according to his cunning and according to his schemes to ultimately upend the very people that he is supposed to love, to to upend the very character that he is supposed to represent. Where we come to him, he is in a a rock-bottom moment in his life. You see, last week we saw where Jacob, he, he... through his schemes, manipulates, uh, manipulates Esau. And manipulating Esau, he manipulates him out of his birthright. Well, shortly after that, at the end of the life of his father Isaac, his father is not able to see well, and it's time for him to give the blessing to the firstborn. And so he loves Esau, and he's excited to give the blessing to Esau, except, except Jacob deceives his father, and he puts on a, a hairy cloak, and he goes, and he gets, and his father, his blind father, begins to rub, and he believes that it's his son Esau, and he blesses Jacob. And so Jacob manipulates Esau out of his birthright, then deceives Isaac out of Esau's blessing. And so Esau makes a vow. He swears, I am going to kill you. I am going to murder you. And when you read the story, not a single person can fault him. Not a single person could fault him for feeling the way that he feels toward his brother Jacob. And so Rebekah gets word that Esau is going to kill her other son, Jacob. And she sends Jacob on the lamb. And Jacob goes and he flees Esau and he ends up at his uncle Laban's house. Now, in Laban, Esau, uh, Jacob kind of meets his match. He, he meets a fellow deceiver, right? 
he, he, he meets one of those lawyers that you see up on the billboards that are, have the funny pictures and the cheesy slogans, right? Like, like he meets a guy that can go toe-to-toe with him in manipulation, toe-to-toe with him in deception, toe-to-toe with him in dishonesty. And he wants to marry Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel, but he finds her to be a bit on the attractive side. Except he apparently has too much to drink, all the wedding feast ensues, and he ends up marrying the wrong woman. A woman that is less eligible, a woman that the Bible, I guess, kindly puts it, her eyes are dim. In other words, she didn't look like Rachel, right? She didn't look like Rachel. She, she wasn't on the cover of L'Oreal, or that's not a cover, that's, a, that's, a, that's an advertisement, but she wasn't representing, Right? And so he still in love with Rachel, wants to marry Rachel. And so Laban deceives Jacob into having to work in his house for 14. And then he ultimately ends up being away for 20 years. And so he flees Laban's house, understanding that Laban is never going to release him, never allow him to go. He flees Laban's house, except the only place that he has to go is where Esau lives. 20 years has passed. 20 years. For 20 years, Esau has been able to foster a grudge. For, for 20 years, Esau has been able to replay the events in his mind of when his brother swindled him out of his birthright and deceived his father so that he didn't receive his blessing. For 20 years, his brother has been able to replay time and again exactly how it is that he's going to attack Jacob, exactly how it is that he's going to take Jacob down. For 20 years, he's been there, and he's been seething. And so his, Jacob returns back toward Canaan. He is terrified. They come up to the edge of the Jabbok, and it's right as they were to pass back in toward the land of Canaan. And he sends, all of the, he sends all of his assembly before him. And what he decides he's going to do is he's going to send all of his riches, all of his wealth in waves to go and to meet Esau first. And he wants to go and he has all of his servants and all of his people be deferential to Esau and to bow down to him and to call him Lord. And he sends all of his goods in waves and he says, I'm giving you all of this. I'm going to give you the wealth the prosperity that you believe that I have stolen from you, that all I want is safe passage, all I want is peaceful passage for my family and I, so you can have it all. And he sends it in waves, and the servants return back to Jacob. And what they tell him terrifies him. It was worst-case scenario being realized. They come and they tell him that Esau is on his way to meet him. And Esau isn't coming alone. Esau is coming with four hundred men, which would have been representative of the size of a militia in Jacob's day. That Esau is coming and Esau is bringing an army with him. That this is going to be a day of reckoning. Jacob is assured. And so Jacob sends his family across the Jabbok and he, he holds back and he holds back that he might be alone with his thoughts and with his God. You can imagine how terrified he was. And yet it's in this midst of this rock bottom moment, it's in the midst of this terrifying time in Jacob's life that Jacob is going to find what ultimately had eluded him all of these years, security. Security in the promise, security in the covenant, security in God. 
It is a strange road that Jacob takes, but ultimately he arrives at security in God, and it's the same strange road that you and I will take. And so what I want us to see this morning is the strange road to security in God. I call it a strange road because it's a road that we would never take on purpose. It's that road, you know, in your GPS, you're, you're following, and it's giving you turn-by-turn turn instruction, and it begins to take every back road that it can possibly take. Like, I can remember going to Dogtown one time and having no clue how to get there, and, like, I ended up on, like, what appears to be, like, a national forest road, and, like, you're going through, and, and every turn that the GPS seems to take you on is obviously and apparently the wrong turn until you arrive. Until you get there in the parking lot and you realize, hey, these crappy little squares that I have in my car are actually pretty sharp. That this is what the road to security in God looks like. That it looks as though it's taking every wrong turn. It looks as though it's taking every downhill and uphill, every hairpin, every blind hill that you can come upon. That it's taking every wrong turn until you look up and there is the Lord seated high and lifted up. There is security found in your life despite the strange path it took you to get there. And as counterintuitive as it seems... As, as much as it seems to work against the idea of security, security has to take the path through brokenness. It has to take the path through brokenness. That to be secure, the strong, to be secured, the strange road to security must break the strong. But the strong are mercifully broken. The strong are mercifully broken. And that's what we're seeing in Jacob here. That's what we're seeing in Jacob here. Jacob is beginning to crack under the pressure. Jacob has come to the end of himself. The moment that he's been running from for 20 years has arrived at his door. And now there is no avoiding it. There is no way that he can uh, get out of it. He has lost all sense of control. See, to overcome insecurity in your life is to face what haunts you. To overcome insecurity is to face what haunts you. It's to face what you can't fix. It's to confront what you can't live without. That's why the strange road to security must pass through brokenness. And that's why Jacob had to face Esau. He had to face Esau. For all of, for the last 20 years, two decades, he had been living in fear of his brother. He'd been living afraid of what his brother would do to him. He'd been living in afraid of, of experiencing the wrath that would ultimately come at his brother's hatred toward him. That is, Jacob feared his brother more than he feared God. He feared Esau more than he feared God in the same way that we fear the loss of our job or the death of our spouse or the rebellion of our children or the loss of our health more than we fear God. For how many of us, if we could be assured a life that would go exactly according to our script, exactly according to the prosperity that we want, exactly according to the family that we dreamed of, exactly according to the children that we would have scripted, if we could script out our whole life and take it out of the hands of God and take it into our own hands, how many of us would take that deal? That's what Jacob was trying to do and that's what we try to do. And the only explanation is to say that we fear, we fear the loss of control. We fear the loss of what we want. We fear the loss of our treasure more than we fear God, which means that God is not our treasure at all. And so we begin to manipulate. 
We manipulate the relationships that we have. We manipulate our family members. We manipulate our children. We manipulate our circumstances. We manipulate our finances. We manipulate all of the areas in our life. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to assert control over every area of our life so that ultimately, ultimately, it goes to the direction that we want to do. What we're trying to do in other way, in other words, is we're trying to manipulate our way. We're trying to scheme our way towards security. Towards security. Toward feeling as though everything is under control. And ultimately, what we're doing is we're trying to be God. We're trying to be God. We're trying to superintend all of the circumstances of life to come out according to our will. We're trying to superintend all of the, all of the grievances that we have and all of the fears that we have and all the trepidations that we face so that ultimately we land on the outcome that we have determined is the wisest outcome. The outcome that we have determined is the most successful and most effective and you know that you're faking, but you're determined to fake it until you make it. And so you just smile wider and flex bigger, assuring yourself and assuring your family and assuring your spouse and your kids and all of your employees that you are, in fact, strong enough to hold all of this together. And then mercifully, 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 God brings you to the end of yourself and God breaks you. And you see, the stronger you believe you are, the more the severe the break will be. The stronger you believe that you are, the more severe the break will be. Flowers are broken easily by children, but oak trees, oak trees are snapped by tornadoes. I wonder if it sounds weird to you what I said, because it sounds weird for me to say it, that God is the one who breaks you. That God is the one who breaks you, not the circumstances that you face. Not the fears that you know, not the worst moment of your life, not the hardship that you're, you're not wanting to see, not, not seeing worst case scenarios play out in your life. No, what, who ultimately breaks you is God himself. God breaks the strong. God humbles the proud. God brings man down to his knees. And for us, with our 21st century sensibilities, we struggle with the idea that a God who is good and a God who is gracious and a God who is benevolent and a God who is redemptive and saving is the same God that would break us. Except it is because he is good. It is because he is loving it is because he is saving that he, in fact, must break us. That he must bring us to our knees so that we can enjoy the fullness of his goodness, the fullness of his love, the fullness of his sovereign hand, working all things in our lives according to our good and his glory. All night long, he begins to wrestle. There he is in his fear, in his worry, in his timidity. And he already, he's already given up on sleep. You've had those nights, right? Where you've already given up. You already say, all right, tonight is insomnia night, right? And you, you're, you're, maybe you're praying or maybe you're thinking, but, but whatever it is, you're going to wrestle through all of the issues that you're facing. You've got all these circumstances bouncing around in your head. And that's where Jacob is when an assailant comes and tackles him. And they begin to wrestle and they begin to struggle and they begin to battle. 
and the battle goes all night long and it appears that, that one is not going to prevail over the other. It appears that one is not going to, to conquer the other when suddenly the assailant takes his finger and, and touches Jacob's hip and in an instant his hip is dislocated and he crumbles to the ground. As Jacob crumbles to the ground, unable to stand as he once was, unable to be strong as he had been before, now humbled and meek, he, ta- he does the only thing that he can do, which is to reach hold up and take hold of his assailant, and he holds him with all of his might, with everything that he's got. He just clings to the assailant. And then in verse 28, do you know who it tells us the assailant is? Jacob must have realized it long ago. It says, for you have striven with God. That God was the one that had come against Jacob. God was the one that had assailed him. God was the one that had wrestled with him. God was the one that had broken his hip. God himself was bringing Jacob to the end of himself. God himself was bringing Jacob down to rock bottom. Why? Why is it that God would show up right in the middle of these two great conflicts in Jacob's life? Jacob is fleeing Laban, and fleeing Laban, he's going and he's having to confront his brother. So he's sandwiched, he's bookended between these two great conflicts in his life, one with his uncle and the other with his brother. And it seems like this ought to be the time that God would leave you alone, doesn't it? Doesn't it always feel like that when when God brings you to the end of yourself? That it happens in that season of your life in which you think, God, I could have handled this last year. I could have handled this five years ago, but I can't deal with this right now. I can't handle my health collapsing right now. I can't handle a rebellious child right now. I can't deal with this now. Except that's by the design of God. Why is it? Why is it that he would have chosen this this moment when when? When Jacob was fleeing, running from two men, it's because God wanted Jacob to understand that his battle was with God and not with man. That his battle was with those who, who the, the one who could kill the soul and not just the body. That his battle was, was against the one who had given the promise, who had secured the promise, who had made him the son that would perpetuate the good news to the ends of the earth. That this was a battle for Jacob's good and for God's glory. This was a battle for Jacob's role in God's story. And God was resolved to teach Jacob once and for all whose promise this was and who it was that was ultimately going to keep it. Not by the schemes of man, not by the deception of Jacob, not even by the strength of Jacob. See, insecurity seeks control, doesn't it? That's why it manipulates That's why it deceives. That's why it tries to outrun everybody else to the front of the line. That's why it cuts every corner. And for Jacob, for Jacob, his promise was there and he knew what God would have for him to do. Except there he is trying to control it all of himself and trying to control all of it himself. The very promise of God, the good news of God, the blessing of God was a burden to Jacob. And that's why we wrestle and control and try to get control from God. And we ultimately are to understand that our battle is with Him. I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning, if you knew that you could have total control over the outcome of tomorrow, would you find more comfort in that reality than you would knowing that God already does? 
Would you find more comfort in knowing that you have control over tomorrow versus being assured that God has control over tomorrow? Do you trust your control or do you trust God's control? Because if you are comforted by the thought of your control, you haven't yet been brought to the end of your strength. You haven't yet realized the fullness of your weakness. You haven't yet realized the goodness of God and the strength of God and the kindness of God. You see, we deceive ourselves into believing that we have a better way and that we can manipulate our way to a better tomorrow. But God, in his mercy, will rescue you from yourself by bringing you to the end of yourself. Rock bottom forms a stark backdrop for the glory of God in the life of sinners. It's at rock bottom that we begin to look up. It's at rock bottom that we realize there's nowhere else for me to go. I'm out of tricks. I'm out of game to run. I'm, 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 out, of, I'm out of plays. I, I have no more deceptions. I have no more schemes. I have no more hopes. And so it's there at the bottom of, of the pit that we look up and we look for one that is beyond us. We look for one that is greater than us. We look for one that can secure a promise that we have no hope in ourselves of securing. Is it any wonder? That Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You see, on the road to security, the broken are freely blessed. The broken are freely blessed. Jacob, at the end of himself, has only one move. He has only one move. He holds on for dear life. But doesn't that seem strange? Doesn't that seem, if, if I get attacked at Oxford Exchange this week, going to Target for my social distancing run, if, if I get attacked at Oxford Exchange this week and the assailant hits me and then runs, you know what I'm going to let him do? I'm going to let him run. I'm going to let him run. I want him to leave. I want him to go away. But here is Jacob, and he's facing this assailant that's wrestling, that's crippling him, that's, that's taking his hip clean out of socket, and the assailant is ready to go at daybreak. He's ready to flee, except Jacob is there, and Jacob is holding on to him and clinging to him and says, you cannot go. Why? Who on earth holds on to their assailant? It's odd to us when we begin to realize that Jacob's attacker is identified later as God. But it's because, it's because of who the attacker is identified as. It's because of who Jacob realizes his assailant is. That's why he holds on to him. You see, the one who came against him was the very one who enabled him to prevail. The one who strikes him down is the very one who will lift him back up. The one that appears to be taking his life from him was the one that would give life to him. See, God teaches us. He teaches us about his strength. He teaches us about our weakness. He teaches us about our insufficiency by pressing down upon us with his strength. He presses down upon us, never applying the full, the full breadth and the full power of his divine might. But he presses down and he allows us to begin feeling some of the burden, begin feeling the weightiness of it. And as he begins to press down upon us so that we can see how weak we are, how insufficient we are, how unable we are to actually control the outcomes of life and certainly the outcomes of eternity, he begins to lift it away to show himself as the deliverer, to show himself as the one who brings the hope. 
uh, Calvin, he describes it like this. He says, he, meaning God, arranges the conflict in such a way that while he attacks us with one hand, he defends us with the other. He supplies us with more strength to resist than he uses to attack us. We may rightly say that he fights against us with his left hand and for us with his right hand. That God is showing Jacob how insecure the promise is in his hands and how, how secure and fastened it is in the hands of a sovereign God. And so there is Jacob left clinging to his assailant, clinging to the one who has assailed him and the very same one who he knows is the only one that can deliver him. For Jacob, the blessing had always had an asterisk. He, he could only hit a home run if he took steroids and, and stole signs. He could only obtain any kind of standing, any kind of prominence, any kind of hope if he cheated his way there. But God. But God. But God could give him the fullness of the promise that he could never cheat his way to. God could give his blessing legitimacy. God could remove the asterisk from the blessing of Jacob. He could remove the, the, the asterisk from the birthright of Jacob. That God in his might, God in his strength, God according to his will, God could give Jacob what Jacob could never cheat his way to. A blessing that was secured, a blessing, blessing that was fastened, a blessing that was legitimate. So don't resent the heavy hand of God when it comes upon you. Don't resist the heavy hand of God when it comes upon you. No, let it bring you to the bottom. And it's at the bottom that you will see him lift it back up. Because God often allows us to feel the weight of the burden before he lifts it. But when he does, when he does, he secures you forever. You are confirmed as his child. You are blessed. See, when we see Jacob there holding on to God, we see in Jacob what he's long been missing. Jacob's been trying to do all of this his way by his strength. But when Jacob takes and he takes hold of his assailant to be his deliverer, to be the one that would bless him, the one that would transform him, as he takes hold of him, he is taking hold of him in faith. Finally, finally, Jacob isn't looking within himself. Finally, Jacob isn't digging down deeper. Finally, Jacob isn't coming up with a scheme of his mind or a plan for his life. Finally, he takes hold of God himself and he says, I will not let go of you. I am holding on to you by faith, knowing that it is you who blesses, you who delivers me, you who can hold me secure. And you know how God responds? God responds to Jacob the way that he responds to every sinner that comes to him in faith. God gives freely what we scheme to gain. God gives freely what we scheme to gain. 
God blessed him. He had deceived so much. He'd worked so hard. He had slept so little. But God, but God, but God interrupted his misery and brought him to the bottom of the pit and then gave him freely what he had always wanted, the birthright, the blessing, the security. Now he had it, not because he had worked for it, not because he had labored for it, not because he deserved it or merited it, but because God, God had given it to him when he held on to God in faith. And it changes him. He's not Jacob anymore. The name Jacob, I've told you before, it came with all kinds of baggage. He was the one that would grab you by the heel and and trip you up. This was the very definition of what his name was to be. And so as God begins to bless Jacob and and affirm Jacob now as the son of the promise, he says, you're not going to be Jacob anymore. You're not the deceiver anymore. You're not the schemer anymore. You're not the planner anymore. You're not the unethical brother anymore. That's not who you are. Now your name will be Israel. Israel. The name Israel literally means God strives or God contends. God fights. God fights. He was telling telling Jacob through the very transformation of his character, through the renaming of who he is, you will come against Esau and you will win. You will come against the Canaanites and you will win. No one will come against my people. No one will render my promise insecure because I will fight the battle for them. I will fight. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The namesake of the promise becomes Israel. The namesake of the promise. They take on the name of this man who was so deceptive, this man who was so corrupt. And there they are hearing these words by Moses called by the name of Israel in the midst of the wilderness looking over the promised land at the walls of Jericho and all of the mighty and prosperous lands of Canaan wondering how in the world they are supposed to slay these men who appear to them as giants. These men who are carrying grapes that are as large as people who are going and living in this land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. Moses telling them this story and what is he telling them? The walls of Jericho will be crushed because God will fight for you. The sun will stand still as you strike down your assailants because God will fight for you. The promise is not in the might of our military. The promise is not in the brilliance of our leaders. The promise is held fast and secured because God is with us and God has secured it and God will fight for us. See, this is why he's called the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the three men that met face-to-face with God as the sole representatives of the promise. The one that that God, against all odds, against all of nature, against all of logic, sustained his promise through these three men so that forever he would be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the deceiver. The one who he transformed and fought against that he might prove that he would fight for him. And what we see as Jacob is transformed into Israel is the prototype of New Testament conversion. 
that God initiates with us, bringing us to the end of ourselves. We respond in faith, and then God delivers us from himself. And we're changed forever. We have a new name. We're not Jacob anymore. We're not liar anymore. We're not sexually immoral people anymore. We're not the corrupt children of wrath anymore. We're not the bearing the scarlet letter of our sin anymore. No, now, now we are bearing the righteousness of Christ, the one who went to the cross and fought for us against death and hell and the grave and who prevailed for us. No, we are Israel. We are Israel. God fights for us and only God can do that. Only God can turn Jacob into Israel. We were insecure and broken down, but now we have freely what we always worked for. It's secure. I wonder this morning, I wonder, I wonder if there is someone out there and today you would say, I am at the end of the rope. I'm at the end of the rope. I am at rock bottom. Can I just tell you that it is at rock bottom that God is calling you to look up. It is from rock bottom that God brings you to the end of your strength and the end of your morality and the end of your ability to measure up and be good enough. And from there, if you will take hold of Christ, if you will take hold of his promises by faith, that this morning, this morning, you can be transformed from Jacob into Israel and be converted. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Praise God that he's never taken apart a single one of his children that he didn't ultimately put back together again. He's never brought one of his children down into the pit to, uh, only to bring them back up again. That the strange road of fate takes us down the path of disintegration so that we might not be deceived by a false security or soothed by an unrealized idolatry. No, it's so that we can have the real thing, not some artificial harmony, not some pretend faith, not some emotional decision, so that we can have the real thing. And once the broken are blessed, the blessed are graciously mended. The blessed are graciously mended. See, Jacob sees his experience wrestling with the assailant as a gift of grace to him. There's no other way to interpret when he says, I have been face to face with holiness. I've been in the presence with holiness and I have been delivered. Deliverance is a word of grace. That he comes out of this and he's not angry and he's not bitter and he's not upset. Instead, instead, he understands that the only way that he could have survived the presence of holiness was if God himself had delivered him. And when God delivers you from God, when God delivers you from himself, when God delivers you from his holy wrath, who else will you fear? Who else will you fear? Will you fear your brother who wants to kill you? Will you fear your government that wants to oppress you? Will you fear your neighbor that wants to mock you? Will you fear your classmate that wants to exclude you? Who else will you fear when God delivers you from God? And so verses 30 through 32, we see these three ways that he's called to remember. This is to be a moment in his life in which he will remember the grace of God, the provision of God, the blessing of God, and now the mending of God forever. He has a memorial. He renames the place Peniel. This is the place where God delivered me. He, 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 call, he walks now with a limp, with every step reminded of the moment that he wrestled with God and prevailed. He's, now, they say that they would have a new custom. They wouldn't eat 
of the sinew anymore. It was always a reminder of the grace of God. But you know, when things are mended, they're never the same again, are they? If you tear a cloth and sew it back together, you always have a weakness where the patch is, don't you? You always have a weakness where the patch is. And this was the same for Jacob. Jacob was reconstructed by the gracious hand of God, delivered out of the struggle by the goodness of God, but he was never the same again. It says that he walked with a limp. With every step he took, he was reminded of his frailty. With every step he took, he was reminded of just how inadequate and insufficient he was. He was reminded of the costliness of his schemes, the costliness of his manipulation, the costliness of his deception, the costliness of his weakness, except not only was he reminded of his own weakness, but at the very same time, he was reminded that God's strength had been made perfect in his weakness. And so that limp wasn't just a mark of his weakness, that limp was a mark of the strength and the power of Almighty God. Every godly person I know walks like this. All godly people walk with a limp. Godliness is attained through scars. It's the strangest part of the journey. You know, I, I look and, and I realize that now what the Lord has enabled me to, to walk through and experience that I am a scarred man, but as a scarred man, I praise God for it. I think over the last seven years, I don't know that there's a family in our church that I haven't seen cry at least once. I don't know that there's a, a family in our church that hasn't had some kind of hardship, some kind of heartbreak, come, some kind of devastation come and knock on your door. And you are a scarred people. You are scarred children of the living God. But when you look up and you realize in your strength, how, in your weakness, how his strength is made perfect, you can see the scars in your life, the limp with which you walk, and you can praise God for it. Because God is taking his limping children. He is bringing them together to build a great kingdom. A kingdom that will endure forever. You see, our Savior, our Savior is a man who walks with a limp. When we have one who speaks as God, but is separate from God, it brings into our mind what John wrote. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That He is the Word who becomes flesh. And so here, in Genesis 32, we have an appearance, a Christophany, none other than the second person of the Trinity Himself. It is the Son of God that veils his strength so that men can prevail against him, even allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. Jesus' disciples could take their hands and they could put them in the scars of the resurrected Christ. But though he looked weak, though he looked as one against whom men could prevail, it was apparent that it was by his strength that sinners can be graciously delivered from the holiness of God. For by his wounds we are graciously mended. Our promise is secured. And so our limps and our scars are turned now into memorials of God's power. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. 
on our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.